You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Well, good morning, Faith Church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Logan Hole. I am the student director here at Faith Church, and I have the privilege of concluding our Esther series this morning. So we've been going through Esther the past several weeks, and today we are bringing it to a close. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you, can you turn with me to Esther 9? And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back on the table back there for you. And if you don't know your way around the Bible, no worries, we'll have the words up here on the screen as well. And as we do each week, we stand for the reading of God's Word because God's Word is living and active and it is speaking to us this morning. So can you please rise for God's Word this morning? Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So to begin this morning, I'm going to do a quick recap. I'm trying to make it like 30 seconds so we can dive in. We've got a lot to talk about and the conclusion of this story. But basically, in this story, we have four main characters. And you have King Xerxes, who's the head over the Persian Empire. And then you have second in command, and his name's Haman. And you'll figure out, as you have if you've been sticking with us this series, that Haman's not a great guy. And then you have Queen Esther. And then you have Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin and kind of her father figure because Esther was an orphan, um, so Mordecai raised her. And what's going on is that the king throws this party, and then the queen doesn't want to be with him, so then he banishes her, and he finds a new queen, and that so happens to be Esther. And then this man Haman comes into play, and Haman is upset with Mordecai because Mordecai doesn't bow down to him. Right? How evil. He didn't bow down to another human. So then he decides, all right, this Mordecai guy, he's a Jew. So I'm going to wipe out all of the Jews and all of the Persian Empire. Goes to the king. The king gives him a signet ring, stamps the approval. And then there's this edict that's sent out in every language, every tribe, for everyone to read that on the 13th day of the month of Adar, all the Jews will be wiped out and destroyed, and there's nothing they can do about it. When Mordecai finds out about this, he pleads and tries to get in touch with Esther, so he puts on a sackcloth and ashes, and he's mourning, and then Esther sends down one of her eunuchs and talks with him, and they have a conversation back and forth, and basically it ends up with Mordecai saying, for such a time as this, right? God has placed you in this position for such a time as this so that you can step up and save God's people. She knows that if she goes before the king and the king hasn't requested her presence, then she will surely die unless the king raises his golden scepter, which is exactly what happened. So the king raises his scepter and says, what is your request? She requests to have a feast with Haman and with the king. And so then they have a feast, and as they have this feast prepared, then Esther tells the king, look, there's a guy who's trying to kill and wipe out all of my people. And then she tells the king that it's Haman. And so the king's just like, man, what is going on? He takes a minute. He needs a minute to breathe, so he goes out of the room. And then we see that Haman is pleading for his life, right? And in a sense where he's all over Esther saying, please, please, please. So when the king walks back in, not a good look. The king gets mad, and the king's upset, one, that Haman's trying to wipe out all his people and that he's all over his queen. So he says, all right, we're not going to do this. 
So then the king takes Haman and hangs him on the gallows where Haman originally wanted to kill Mordecai. So it's just this complete ironic situation going on. And then, to top it off, Mordecai now takes Haman's position as second in command. So to conclude where we ended up last week, we have the king, and then we have Mordecai, and now we have Esther. Really, they're the three top dogs in chain of command, and this is where we're going to pick up. So in the conclusion of this story, I want to conclude with three kind of sections or aspects of this um, story. And, and I want to look at how does, one, how does this play out in the story, and then we're going to conclude with how does it apply to our life. So I know I did that real quick. I summed it up, but hopefully you know where we're at. And then I want to I want to start with this. The first aspect of the conclusion of the story is an amended decree. So in Esther 8, we see that the original edict that was sent out to wipe out all the Jews was written in the king's name and sealed with his ring, and it cannot be revoked. So this original edict that says all the Jews will perish, and they have no choice in it, on the 13th day of Adar, on the month of Adar, they will perish. Right? But here's the thing. There is nothing they can change. The king says it can't be revoked. It was already signed and sealed, and it's already sent out. There is nothing we can do. But here's what you can do. You can have an amended decree. You can add to the decree in hopes of making it more fair. And we see in Esther 8, 10 to 11, it says, And he wrote in the name of King Asuerus and sealed it with a king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were using the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Okay, here's the amended decree. Here is the thing that's supposed to hopefully make it more fair. The Jews will be attacked. There's no doubt about that. But now they can fight back. And not only can they fight back, but they can also take the goods of those that they destroy. Right? So they have opportunity now. The initial decree can't be revoked, but it can be added to. And that's what we see is we see this amended decree. And so now we're going to pick up in today's, um, where we're going to follow today is in chapter 9. So I'm going to read through chapter 9 for us as we begin this morning, and, and I just want you to hopefully, the words we have here on the screen, I want to follow along, but I'm going to read a bulk of it, and then we're going to go back and break it down. I think it's really important to take God's word as it is, and then go back and dissect it, because it's written for a specific reason, because God wanted it written that way. So, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all of the provinces of King Asuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. 
The Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Perishdantha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashda and Arasai and Aradai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha. I'm going to tell you right now, when you're reading the Old Testament, just go through it. Because if you don't know how to pronounce it, neither does anyone else. Okay. <laughs> the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, were reported to the king. Here's what's interesting. He reports this to the king. Listen to what the king says. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. He's saying, look, I'm surprised. I mean, they went through and they tore down this town. What else do you want? And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from the enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made the day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Okay, so that's a lot. But here's the deal. To sum it up real quick, you have these Jews going and they are just, man, they are annihilating everyone who comes their way. And I think about that and I think, doesn't that seem a little much, a little vengeful maybe? Like they had to go not only kill hundreds, not only thousands, but 75,000 in the rural areas, 500 in the city. I mean, they are going and wiping out all these people who are attacking them. And I wonder, what is the point or what's the reason behind this. And this leads us to the second component of this story, and it's a great reversal. So we see in, in verse 1, it says, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Another way you could phrase this is, oh, how the tables have turned. And when I hear this phrase, I think, okay, where does this originate from? So of course, Google it. And I found out that a table is also referred to as a board game. So a board game Table, table, board game, vice versa. There you have it. And what happens is the tables have turned means that if, say you're playing checkers and you get like three pieces left and the other person has like ten, well, the tables mean, turning means that you basically take the table, switch it around, and now you're winning. It's basically an old school version of a comeback. Okay? And the best way I could think to kind of represent what's going on in Esther, it's with a Pixar short. I'm not going to show it. I'm just going to explain it to you. You can go back in your free time and, and you can look it up, but it's called Jerry's Game. And if you know this, it's where this old guy goes to the park by himself and whips out a chessboard and sets it all up. And on one side, he wears glasses. On the other side, no glasses. So it's 
two people. Not really, it's one, but he's playing himself. But the short's basically showing him playing himself, and it gets down to, I'm going to say one guy and the other because it's not going to make sense referring to the same person. So the first guy has only one piece left, and it's his king. And he has to make his move, and he's like, man, I have no moves to make. So instead, he fakes a heart attack and falls down out of his chair. And then the other guy, which is himself, looks under the table to see if he's okay. The first guy reaches up, spins the board around, sits back up, and he's like, I'm good. And then the other guy looks back and looks at the board, and he's like, hmm, what happened? And then he, the first guy moves, puts him in checkmate, and wins the game. Now, it's a funny story, and I, I encourage you, go watch it. It's really silly, and it'll give you a good laugh. But the funny thing is, this is a complete reversal, where he has one piece left, and the other guy has all of his pieces, and he's about to be destroyed and lose the game. But he turns the table, and now he is victorious. And that is exactly what we see in Esther. We don't see a happy medium. We don't see this agreement to do meet in the middle or to only spare some lives. No, it is the Jews were going to be defeated, and they were going to be taken over by Haman's people. But now Haman's people are defeated, and the Jews are victorious. It is a complete reversal of roles. And like I said earlier, when you read this, you may think, wow, there's a lot of killing in there. Why, why does God allow so much killing? Why is there so much death and so much destruction? And why did God have his hand in that? Well, if you rewind back a few years, there's a guy named Saul. And the Lord commands him to go and destroy all of the Amicalites and all of their people. And I want to read this verse in 1 Samuel, and I want us to look at it and see what it says. 1 Samuel 15, 2-3 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to the Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Look, it's not enough to kill man and woman, child and infant. You've got to go destroy their livestock, their camels, their ox, their sheep, their donkey. Take them all out. If they belong with Amalek and his people, wipe them out. Here's what happens. Saul fails to do what God commanded him to do. And Haman is actually a descendant of Amalek. And we see that if Saul had done what God had commanded him to do back in the day, Haman's people wouldn't have rose to this much power. There wouldn't be such a large army fighting against God. In the Old Testament, this is what we call the holy war. It's the war of God's people versus Satan's people. Those who are for God and those who are against God. And that is what we're seeing is God is not simply wiping these people out because he is just a hateful person, but he's wiping these people out because they are opposing him and he is a just God and he must carry out and punish evil and sin. So God is doing what he must do as a just God. And so what's happening is actually God is fulfilling what he once was supposed to fulfill back in the day through Saul. But Saul doesn't complete this. So then we see, back in Esther 9, where all the ten sons of Haman are defeated. And you wonder, well, why do they go and name all of these sons? Why do they have to put all these crazy names in here and then we have to try and read them all? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he puts every name so that you can see every descendant of Haman and Haman himself is wiped out. There will not be another 
person that comes from Haman's lineage. It is destroyed and wiped out, and God's people are victorious, and the enemy of the Jews are defeated. Because look at that. It says the ten sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. This is a holy war where God's people are fighting against those who belong in the world, those who are opposing God. And then you wonder, it says, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And they said this three times. They go and destroy all these people, and three times it says, but they laid no hand on the plunder. If you remember, the amended decree says what? That they can destroy them and take their goods. They can take their goods. And it's funny because Haman approaches the king in the very beginning of the story saying that the Jews are different. We don't need them. They're no good for our, our city and our kingdom. And if we wipe them out, I will give you, the king, all the riches of the Jews. He will take the plunder and give it to the king. So we see again a great reversal of now the Jews can take the plunder, but they choose not to. Why? Because the Jews aren't fighting for self. They're not fighting for their own wealth. They're not fighting for their own pride or for their own greed. They're fighting strictly for God. They don't want the plunder. They don't need the plunder. They want nothing to do with it because they are showing that this is for God. It is God's purpose in defeating those who oppose God. And that God is victorious. God will reign forever and God cannot be defeated. This is the great reversal that we're looking at. And so what do you do when you defeat all those who oppose you? Well, I tell you what, you rejoice, you celebrate, you throw a party. So this is the last section of the story is a reason to worship. And it says, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. I want you to see that. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Jews today still celebrate Purim. Purim is a holiday where they can rejoice that God has been faithful. God protected his people saved them from their enemies, and lifted them up to be victorious. So not only did they celebrate then, but they celebrated in the years to come, in the centuries to come. They're celebrating, and they're still celebrating because of what God has done. When God works in your life, when God works in anyone's life, the initial response should be worship, should be praise. Oftentimes, though, God will work in someone's life, and the initial response is, ooh, look what I did, or give me praise. Even though God did it, and God worked through me, technically I still sort of did it, so I'll take the praise for that. And, and we see that our, our response should be none less than a reason to worship God himself. So I want to look at a couple sections and a couple stories in the Old Testament where they went straight into worship. So we have Moses and the Red Sea at Exodus 15. Moses leads God's people the Israelites, through the Red Sea. And then after, they sing songs of praise. Why? Because they are worshiping what God has done. The Israelites are victorious at Jericho and Ai. So Joshua led his people to victory and now leads them in song, leads them in this um, 
this covenant back with God himself. They're leading them back to praising God, putting it all towards God. And then we have Deborah who led God's people into deliverance in Judges 5, and she leads them, it says, in songs of praise. And then David defeating the Philistines in 2 Samuel, it says that he speaks songs of praise over them. What happens in the Old Testament, what happens in the story of Esther, and what we should be seeing in our day and age is the same thing, that God is worth worshiping, that he is a worthy God, and he is worth worshiping. And I want to conclude, I just want to read um, chapter 10. Chapter 10 is like three verses. It says, King Asuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, and they not written in the books, they are not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Asuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Look, there was a great reversal, right? In the very beginning, the king throws a party for what? To show off all of his power. And then chapter 10, it concludes by saying, the king taxed the land and all the acts of his power and might. It concludes with the same idea that the king is still powerful even through the reversal. And the Mordecai now is second in command. What we see is this is the depiction of God. Right before Jesus came down, before Jesus sacrificed his life, God was all powerful. Then Jesus came made a way for us to be saved, and God is still all-powerful. So I want to take the story of Esther, and basically the conclusion of the story is that God had his hand in all of it. Right When it seemed like there was no way the Jews were going to be victorious, God had his hand in all of it. Behind the scenes, God is working. So what we've been saying this whole series is even if you can't trace God's hand, you can trust his heart. That God is a faithful God, and if he promises something, he will make it into fruition. He will bring it about. So now, how does this apply to our lives? So what we're going to look at in this conclusion, and this conclusion being another 30 minutes. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Maybe. We'll see. We'll see what God does. But in this conclusion, we're going to see, how does this story apply? Because it's one thing to read the Old Testament and think, okay, well, good and jolly, the Jews won, that's awesome, but what does that mean for me? Well, I'm going to take those three components of that conclusion story, and we're going to apply it to our life. So first is our amended decree. Remember that the Jews were going to be defeated. There was an amended decree that meant they could fight back, and they could save and spare their life. Well, there's a God who is a just God, like we said earlier. And there is evil that is presented in the world. And there's a term called total depravity. And what that means is that because of Adam and Eve, because of their sinfulness, every human is born into separation and sinfulness apart from God. Every human being is born apart from God. Therefore, we are all consumed by evil. We are evil in our nature. We are evil in the flesh. Everything we desire apart from God is evil. And so what is our amended decree? Well, it's simple. If God is just, and basically the first decree that went out is that God must punish evil, that there must be a consequence for evil. 
And if there's an amended decree, then it means that something or someone stepped in place and took on that punishment so that we can be free. So what is our amended decree? It's simple. It's Jesus. Jesus is our amended decree because apart from Jesus, there is one thing and one thing only that we deserve, and that is punishment, and that is consequences, the wrath of God poured out on us because we are separated from him. Apart from God, we are evil and we are sinful. And that is the truth. That is what the gospel teaches. So our amended decree is Jesus. And what does that mean for us? Well, this is our great reversal. Because like I said, we are supposed to what? We are supposed to experience God's wrath. We are supposed to have the wrath of God poured out on us. And we are supposed to have punishment for our sins. But God. Can everyone say but God this morning? But God had a different plan. But God was in the background. But God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. I want to read this um, caption from Ian Dugwood, who wrote um, a commentary on Esther. And he says this about the crucifixion. Having laid on our sins on his shoulders, God the Father then poured out the full measure of his wrath against sin upon him. All of the ugliness and pain of the entire history of the Holy War were concentrated into six hours of awful agony and the burning darkness of the cross. His body was not merely tortured and brutalized by the Romans to the point of death, but was exposed to cosmic shame by being hung on the cross. Like Haman and his sons, Jesus' body was hung on a tree, the ultimate sign of God's judgment curse. On the cross, Jesus fully bore God's curse upon our sin. On the cross, Jesus fully bore God's curse upon our sin. I'm going to let that sink in this morning because I feel like if you're anything like me, you grew up in the church and you've heard about you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You've grown up knowing these things. You've grown up hearing, you've been in the church all the time, hearing about Jesus dying on the cross. You've heard about the crucifixion. You've heard about the resurrection. And you hear it so much that it can sometimes become numbing. That you think, oh, well, Jesus died for us. And we just say that like it's a normal thing. But I want you to understand that God's wrath that was meant for you and meant for me was concentrated into six hours of brutal agony for the man who knew no sin. Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. What that means is he was tempted in every way just like you and just like me. But he never fell into temptation. Why? Because he was full of God. He was fulfilled by God and didn't need anything in the world to give him any purpose or desire or fulfillment. And he lived a perfect, spotless life to die on a cross, the brutal death 
that we deserve. And sometimes people talk about the crucifixion and they say, oh, I don't really want to hear about all that. It's a little too gory, a little too much for me. A little too much for you to hear about how our Savior was beaten until the point of death. I think about that. Some people say it's a little too much to hear. Well, that is exactly what you and I deserve. It may be a little too much to hear, but think about how it felt. And I want you to make it real this morning because that's how real it is. Because those nails that went in his hands and went in his feet, that is basically us who hung them there. You see, it is our sin that put Jesus on that cross. Jesus didn't need to come down out of heaven. He had it all. He was already sitting on the throne with God in heaven. He did not need to come down to this broken world, but he did. Why? Because it is the greatest reversal in all of humanity. Because God loved you. God knew you were broken. God knew that you would choose anything but him if you had the choice. God knew that your flesh would be the ruler of your life if he didn't come down. God knew that. But God loved us so much that he came down to our brokenness, not to say, clean yourself up before you can come before me, but to pick us up out of the brokenness, walk with us, and help us grow to become more like Jesus. The greatest reversal is that we were going to be people who were defeated. Just like we sung that song this morning, hell lost another one, I am free. Because apart from Jesus, that's where we belong. It may sound abrupt and it may sound like, ooh, I don't want to hear that. But apart from Jesus, hell is where we belong. Eternal separation from God. Why? Because simply we said we don't need him. We chose the things of the world over God and hell is the consequence. But we can sing Hell lost another one. I am free. Why? Because Jesus. The greatest reversal. We were meant to be defeated. Not Jesus. Jesus was already ruling. He was already reigning. But it's the great reversal because he came down off of his throne to take the place where we deserve to be. I hope that sinks in this morning because Jesus paid it all for you and for me even though we don't deserve it. I mean, just think about what the Bible teaches on love. It tells you to love your enemies. It's easy to love those who are easy to love, but it's hard to love those that you don't want to. And sometimes I think about how hard is it for us as humans to love someone who's done us wrong. We think we deserve to be loved or treated a certain way. So when people don't treat us that way, then we shun them or we reject them or we think negatively of them. Well, here's the thing. Think about how much you've offended Jesus. No one will offend you more than you offended Jesus, but yet he still died for you. That is the beauty of the gospel is that God comes down to our brokenness, the greatest reversal ever, so that we can be taken out of darkness, death, and shame, and brought to be victorious and called righteous and holy in God's eyes. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? It's our reason to worship. Man, in 
every single one of these aspects, Jesus is all of them. Who is our amended decree? Jesus. Who is our great reversal? Jesus. Who is our reason to worship? Jesus. And every area, every void, every aspect of your life, Jesus should be the center. Jesus should be the center. And that is reason, more than reason to worship this morning because Jesus took it all, everything that we deserved so that we can be free. So let's just take it back to Esther as we conclude this morning. Man, the Jews looking in the face of destruction, but God knew what he was doing. But God had his hand on it all. But God was in the background orchestrating victory because God is victorious. And what does that mean for us? We can trust in Jesus because he is already victorious. He has already beat sin and beaten death. So when we accept him and we follow him, we are already victorious. And just like the Jews celebrate Purim each and every year, man, we get to celebrate Jesus each and every day. And this is the last thing I want to say. Every human in here and on the earth has three options. You have option number one, you can oppose God, which is exactly what Haman and his followers did. They oppose God and try to attack him. And how does that result? In the same way then as it does now, that if you oppose God, it results in death, both physical and spiritual death. You will be separated from God, never to be in his presence if you oppose him. The second is a little less subtle. It's to deny God. And we see this in the, with the Jews. Think about it. So the Jews' amended decree is that they can fight back. But what if a Jew says, you know what? That's awesome. I'm glad we have the grace of the king. But I'm just going to keep doing my thing because I think I know what's best. Well, there was no defense for the Jews. The Jews had to defend themselves. So if the Jew was to do nothing about it, he would surely end in death. If a Christian says, well, that's awesome that Jesus died for our sins, but they still say, but I don't really need him right now. I still want to do life my own way. I believe that Jesus is God, and I believe in all those things, but I still want to do life my own way. But whether you oppose him or whether you deny him, it has the same result, and that's death. Both spiritual and physical. But here's the awesome thing. The third option is that you can accept him. You can accept Jesus and you can accept God. And what does that mean? It means that it results in life. In life abundantly. It means that you, along with God, will be victorious. Just as the Jews were when they fought back with God. But guess what the Jews had to do? The Jews had to fight. And this is, I think, so important. So please hear me this morning. Is that if you claim to be a Christian... Know that you have to fight every single day. It's not a one-time decision and you just ride the wave until you pass away to be in heaven forever. It is a daily decision that you will pick up your cross daily and follow him. And I'm speaking to you just as much as I am to myself. 
Please hear that this morning because I have learned that the days that I don't get up and pick up my Bible, the days that I don't get in the Word, the days that I don't seek after Jesus, man, my flesh seems so loud and so prominent and it's so easy to fall into temptation. Whether it's anger, whether it's lying, whether it's gossiping, whatever it may be, it's so easy to fall into temptation when we don't put on the full armor of God. Because this is a spiritual battle and every day we must fight. God's won and he is victorious, but we have to fight every day to be better tomorrow than we are today. To be a better Christian tomorrow than we are today. To know Jesus more tomorrow than we do today. Because Jesus is the answer. He's our amended decree. He's the greatest reversal and he is our reason to worship. So we're going to sing, this may be a little different, you can go and come up, this is going to be a little weird, but I just want you to lift your voice, you can stay seated, you can stand, whatever you want, but I just want to sing, everyone should know this, it's Jesus paid it all, it's just a couple lines. If he's our reason to worship this morning, I want us to just cry out and sing this to Jesus. Just sing this to Jesus, and then we'll close. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. You guys lift your voices again. Jesus paid it Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. Man, I thank you for Jesus. Lord, sin had left a crimson stain in your creation. Lord, apart from you, we're sinful. Lord, apart from you, we'll choose anything but you. But Lord, you came down for us. Broken humanity. But you loved us, Lord, and you saw a purpose in us. Lord, I thank you that you see us. But we live in a world where everyone just wants to be seen and heard. Lord, I thank you that you see us. Lord, I pray this morning Lord, I pray this morning desperately that your words were spoken through me and not my own. Lord, I pray that every heart in here is stirred to want to know you more. Lord, I pray that you can do what only you can do. Lord, I thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for this story of Esther. Lord, for anyone who feels like they're in a storm, for anyone who feels like the waves are crashing over them and they feel like they can't get another breath. 
Lord, I pray that they know you are near. Lord, the Jews put on sackcloth and ashes, went around mourning and crying out because they knew destruction was coming. But God, you had a plan. And now the Jews are victorious in the story of Esther. And Lord, if we are going through something and it may feel like we have no way out, Lord, you are the way. And Lord, if life is going as perfect as can be, Lord, I pray that we know we need you as much in the highs as we do in the lows. Lord, I pray that you draw us closer to you each and every day. Lord, help us overcome our unbelief. Lord, we want to believe so bad, but sometimes our doubts and our fears overwhelm us. Lord, help us overcome our unbelief. Lord, help us be more like Jesus. Fill us with your fullness of your spirit, the fullness of your presence, because where you are, sin cannot be. Lord, you break down walls. You break every chain. Lord, apart from you, we are trapped in sin. But Lord, through you, we are made free. Lord, if anyone is not living in freedom right now, I pray that you touch their hearts. Lord, allow us to be a body of believers who are free, free from sin, free from shame, free from guilt, free from fear. Lord, free us from the darkness of the world. Because the greatest reversal, our amended decree, our reason to worship is here this morning. Lord Jesus, you are the answer. And I thank you for everything you've done and everything you will do and everything you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.